Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Welcome to A PhD Student Reads, episode 26. Now, on Wikipedia, there are fewer 26 number facts than there have been for, for other numbers. So I've gone something geometric-based. So there are 26 faces of the rhombicubo... Oh dear, I should have read this a lot. It's quite... <laughs> Rhombicuboctahedron, an Archimedean solid with eight triangular, six square and twelve rectangular faces. And that laugh you just heard, joining me as always, Rodrigo Cockting. What do you think of that? I think that is wild. I didn't know that was a shape. I just Googled it. It's a cool shape, though. Because um, usually, I guess, when, when I imagine kind of like 3D shapes, all the faces would be of the same shape. Yes, that's and what this I one, like too. you said, it has triangles to kind of make like the squares kind of uh, line up pretty good, which is cool. Um, I mean, I don't have any fun facts about 26. I live in a unit 26, so it feels like a special <laughs> moment for me. But other than that, you know, not, thing, not a lot special about the number. I am 26. There we go. That's another, that's another nice fun fact tired. about the number 26. So you can follow the show on Twitter at PhD Reads. And now on Instagram, after getting the layered butter Instagram wrong every month, I feel like <laughs> it's now also my show's responsibility to get it wrong too, because it also isn't the same, because PhD Reads already taken by, by someone else. So it's PhD Student Reads, like the name of the show. There we go. And if you can uh, find one, you can find the other. <laughs> yes, my own personal hell is like social media accounts that don't match, as in my layered butter mm-hmm. one. It's like, because you have to then make the clarification. Like, if everything was the same, you could just say, like, like my personal ones are R Cockting, R C O K T A N G, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business, like my business ones for layered butter is like, oh, layered butter here, but layered underscore butter here. And it's just like a hellish experience. Well, at PhD Reads on Instagram actually reads uh, scientific papers. So if you're more interested in that, there's an Instagram <laughs> out there, uh, Instagram account out there for for you. There will be spoilers ahead for TV, films, comic books, all the things you could possibly think of. Maybe less so novels. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been reading, still reading his dark materials. It's good. There you go. And no spoilers there. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk first, before we get into comic books and TV shows and all sorts of things, that Batman Joker scene. In the past month, the Batman Joker scene came out. So last month, we'd spent a lot of time talking about the Batman. And you spoke about the Batman on the uh, Ed Butter podcast. Now, <clears throat> this Joker scene has come out. And from after watching it, it's about five minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. I had two thoughts. One, it was the right decision to cut it. It didn't really add anything, and I think all it would have done right. is produce even more Joker discourse than there already was with his tiny cameo at the end of the film. Yeah. And the other thing I thought of, what does this mean for the Eternals? Because uh, Barry Keegan, if he, I imagine if the Joker role comes round and he takes that up, what was his Eternals character name? Uh, Druig. Will yeah. suddenly disappear if there is an Eternals sequel. 
perhaps the fact I couldn't remember what his character name in the Eternals was is a sign that that doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I think it's kind of like almost the best part of Eternals, though, to me. And I think he probably would not be able to fully disappear. Like, mm-hmm. they have to be signing, like uh, Eternal specifically, right? Because I think Salma Hayek had said that she's uh, signed on for up to three movies. Yeah. And spoiler alert for people that have not seen the Eternals. Salma Hayek dies in this one, so if they are uh, bringing, if they've made her sign for three movies, I'm guessing that they made Barry sign for three movies too. And I think specifically with Batman, I can't imagine that he would be on for the Batman for more than one movie because you know it's not like um, like Batman generally has such a variety of villains that they're kind of like in for one movie and then he kind of deals with somebody else in the next one. So I would imagine that they would try to figure out how to make the scheduling work so that he can do both things. I don't I don't anticipate it would be a problem. But I do agree with you that, uh, you know, the introduction of this scene into the movie would have just kind of raised more questions than it needed to answer. I mean, also, um, it, it acknowledges that it's their anniversary, which kind of uh, presumes, I guess, that they had their, their major yeah. conflict a year prior to this, which also makes me kind of, like, question more of Batman's skills because a lot of this is about how, like, Batman is still early on in his career. And I'm starting to think, okay, like, so he, he has had a full year to kind of figure some of this out. Like, I think at some point they say it's almost like he's been yeah. doing this for two years. Um, so, I don't know, just always kept, I kept going back to that and, like, how prepared or unprepared should this man be? Should two years be enough to be able to solve riddles better than he was doing? Perhaps so. I don't know. Well, perhaps the Joker was very, you know, they were his his uh, gags, I suppose, are very on the nose. No no fiddling, figuring out things needed there. It was like, oh, yep, it's that. Mm-hmm. Off I go. Maybe that's how he thought he was a lot smarter than he actually was after <laughs> after taking Until... down the Joker. He's like, this is pretty easy. Oh, no, riddles. <laughs> his true weakness. Sitting, sticking with the... Uh, DC uh, theme, I suppose. I finally got around to watching Peacemaker this past month. Um, so we'll, I know you've seen Suicide Squad, so we'll talk about that first. Mm-hmm. What did you think of, what was it, 2019's? 20, that, the more recent of the two Suicide James Squad. Guns. Yes, James Gunn's. Suicide Squad. Yeah, I think like... I, I, I believe I mentioned this before, but it's like James Gunn has a very specific flavor. And so this project, these projects that you're doing are in that way. And I think it's really cool. But at the same time, it is kind of repetitive of other things that he does. Right? You can kind of start to see like the way that he thinks and so on. Um, the one thing that the Suicide Squad has that a lot of his other projects can't have is the ability of disposing of a wide variety of characters, which lends you to be able to have like a fun, gruesome scenes where multiple characters die and so on. And also that the stakes are a lot different uh, just in terms of like your attachment to these characters that any of them could die at any given time because, you know, they're they're disposable. So I think like he has done a great job at figuring out what his voice is. I just think that, you know, if we are going to start seeing more and more James Gunn projects that are all within, like, adjacent superhero universes, then maybe he kind of also needs to figure out a way that he can change it up a bit because I do think that it's, like, you know, I I love eating, like, hamburgers. I can't eat a hamburger every day, you know? Like, I have to give it some space so that I can enjoy it. Yeah, I think I'm on a very similar sort of... Uh... Well, train of thought, especially after watching Peacemaker. I like 80s rock music. However, mm-hmm. there is a limit, to, especially on like an eight episode show. It's like, all right, I get it. 
you like 80s rock music too, James Gunn. Yeah. Not every scene needs to have a song. Um, but I will say, so back to Suicide Squad. One of my favourite characters of that was Peacemaker. And I would imagine, I don't know what the logistics behind it was, whether they made the film first and then they thought, oh, John Cena is great. Let's make this. Mm-hmm. Let's make a show because the film does end with a you know a stinger for Peacemaker, but I don't know how long after right. that that was filmed. That's beside the point. Peacemaker was a good show for those of you that haven't seen the Suicide Squad or Peacemaker. I guess he's kind of sort of you would imagine Captain America, if Captain America just disposed of anyone that stood in his in his way and mm-hmm. in his view of of freedom. And I think Peacemaker, at least this interpretation here. Admittedly, it's not a character I've ever heard of or read before. Does suit John Cena's acting skills uh, to a T. I mean, as a ex wrestler, you know everything mm-hmm. is over the top and exaggerated, and that's something that Peacemaker yeah. and I suppose James Gunn's creative vision is something that that very much exemplifies. So it wasn't. I was, you know, I went in. With fairly high expectations. It's eight episodes, and that is the perfect length. Like, if it went on for a bit longer, uh, I would have slightly maybe got a bit more fed up with the James Gunn isms, although there are story arcs that I didn't care about at all. There's Peacemaker's got a father, as you might expect, and he mm-hmm. is very much a, you know, a neo Nazi, and a lot of time is spent focusing on their relationship about oh how you know he grew up in this environment and that led him to becoming the peacemaker that we see what i didn't need was some the father then getting his like super suit back on of this neo-nazi leader that he was and them having a fight that was all i could have just stuck with his father was bad and that led to him being who he is i was also surprised that it's another alien invasion plot which is the plot Mm -hmm. of the suicide squad but I mean, I like Alien, so it is what it is. But I think what surprised me the most is not every episode is directed by James Gunn, but clearly he had a watchful eye over the whole process. Because even the episodes that aren't directed by James Gunn do look and feel like they were directed by James Gunn. And now the show's coming back for a second season. I think he is directing every single episode, so maybe watching the two back-to-back, it'll be more obvious that those episodes weren't directed by him are a bit different. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Have you seen Peacemaker? I realize I'd never even asked. Um, I haven't, but I like it's so. I'm so involved, I guess, in, in following pop culture media that I know mm-hmm. a lot about it. And I know, for example, that like the some of the Justice yes. League show up. I think, like, really all of them, but like, really Jason Momoa and Ezra Miller yes. kind of have. I believe like, we're actually. There's no Batman. Um, They're all like silhouettes. There's no Batman the, silhouette. They're silhouettes. But... I know. Ezra and Jason do speak. Do speak, and I think, like, they actually filmed for for that, and I think, like, uh, Superman and Wonder Woman were just, like, stand-ins or something, and, like, I I know that uh, Danielle Brooks is, like, the daughter of Amanda Waller, I think, and, like, a lot of other things that just through, I guess, osmosis, but I haven't watched it yet. I do think, um, from what I can tell, that Peacemaker, the character, uh, is 
a character uh you know like he has the simplicity that I, I don't want to imply that John Cena has, but that John Cena's public persona mm-hmm. has, right? Like that, that the wrestler, you know, it's like he knows what he's about. He doesn't like the, the, the nuances then become, I guess, part of like his origin story. But I think like you were saying, he's like perfectly suited to play that character. And I think he does it well. I, I know Freddie Stroma too was, I've seen a lot of praise for him for his portrayal of Vigilante and kind of their relationship for that. So I think it's like worth checking out. I also am like, so peripherally attached to like the dcu that it's like i will get to it someday i just have not gotten to it yet that's very much how i i keep the the snyder cut keeps popping up at the bottom of my tv because i like sort of set it to remind me to watch it it's like one day one day when i'm sick i saw it i saw the snyder cut surprisingly and i mean it's better than the other one but i also feel like that's not like a particularly high bar to cross um i just don't know i feel like i i don't think that he is wrong in his vision Mm -hmm. it's just like his vision and my vision of what i want from the justice league are not the same thing and so i don't know that there's any edit that he could have done that would have been turned it into what i want which is like the joss whedon tone but a good movie (laughs) you know what i mean like joss whedon made a bad movie but like the tone that he was going for was not something that i was unhappy with and so that's kind of where i landed i feel like i'll probably feel the same and have severe just doubts of why I'm spending four hours of my life. Did you watch it in one go or did you split it up? I watched it in two. So I watched it with friends until like, I don't know, I think we decided to do like two hours maybe of it. And then, because it's also divided into sections. So I think like some, at the time when it came out, the internet said like, oh, a good place to stop is like at part X. So we did that. And then I was like, I'll, I'll watch this one later. But then I ended up falling asleep that day. So I watched it the next morning. So it wasn't two watches, but it was, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was better than the other one by far. Um, you know, it's kind of like how I feel about the the third of the the Star Wars um, new movies. Like the, what, Rise is, it? Of Skywalker, what yeah. is that one? Rise of Skywalker. Like, um, it just seems like. I feel like Joss Whedon, just like this movie, kind of came in last minute and were just trying to shuffle the pieces around to do the best that they could do and it didn't end up delivering because, again, it's like there's prep work involved in doing these things so you can't just randomly decide, okay, I guess I'll do this and, and change it up and it doesn't end up landing. I think like Joss Whedon's movie felt like that and I think Zack Snyder came back and he was like, okay, these, this is what I was doing. This is where these things were going. So it feels a lot more logical, a lot more a lot more conclusive i mean still again tonally not where i want to be so that's never going to change but a better movie for sure well, that's that's good to know. one day one day you will hear it here whether it'll be 2022 or 2052 i will watch watch the uh, snyder cut at some point on the topic of good television though moon knight has begun on on disney plus at the time of recording two episodes have come out have you seen those? I've seen episode one, which is a testament to how busy I've been. That is like I'm a big mm-hmm. fan of Marvel stuff in general and like the TV stuff. But I've only seen one episode because I couldn't find the time to watch the second one. So I started off the first, like I've seen the fir- full first episode. So that's about and as much as I, I For your sake, I will stick with, 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 with episode one. But just based on episode mm-hmm. one, what do you think of the latest in, in the MCU? 
I think I would be very, I, I'm the wrong person to ask if you're looking for an unbiased opinion because I am, again, a big Marvel fan. But more importantly, more underlined than any of that, I'm a big Oscar Isaac right. fan. So seeing him do this, and I also, I saw recently in the news that I think he's not signed on to do more than this, just this. So it feels like he's having a good time. He's like playing around with it. I do want to ask you as uh, somebody from that specific region of the world, how do you feel about his fake accent? Which again, I guess like story-wise is meant to yeah. be fake. But I'm like, is so is it like you can tell that it's like not you know what i mean like the would people in his i guess is this set in london like where is yeah, the, so the, the well, museum yeah i don't know so where like, people... he's, his museum you know the british museum if you look out the window you don't see trafalgar square and yet he opens the door and he's like huh. i guess they're like let's just move the london landmarks around so it's people the can stark see towers they, uh, of uh of the uk yep. i guess but anyway so like if this was set in london would people be like your accent is really weird, right? Or would it be like, I guess he's maybe from some region that I don't know? Um, I think his accent is weird. Uh, uh-huh. I mean, I suppose us British folk are all supposed to be uptight, so I don't think anyone would call him out on his voice being odd. <laughs> but I would have no idea where in the UK he was right. supposed to be from. I guess somewhere I mean, down south, but... Yeah, it's, it's in story though. It ends up being an alter mm-hmm. that is like you know part of a dissociative identity disorder, and so uh, not really a British person, which I guess makes it more, um, I guess, a sensical yeah. if it doesn't land. Um, overall, I, I did read a little bit of uh, the the beginning of Moon Knight. I didn't end up reading it for this episode, but I, and I was going through it, and it's like you can see a lot of beats that they're hitting. Um, I think the 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 culty plot of it is like also something that i enjoy because i like cults i mean i like reading about cults i don't know if we had this conversation but i'm always like would i be able to be convinced by a cult is always like a question that i have in my mind and i feel like one day i'm gonna test it out and either i'm gonna feel be very proud of myself or you will you will never hear from me again um other than that i think like the the only like the big criticism for me i think is like that the suit at least at the end of that first episode it looks so much like cgi as in like you know i don't know if there was like did did oscar isaac even put on a suit or is it just like a green suit and then it's all computers because it's like again i think uh, it's a very valid criticism at marvel that it's like they're so overly reliant on on special effects and, and cgi and it's like you make so much money take your actors to i don't know fucking egypt or something and like do something with it or you know make them make a real suit and like you can enhance it with special effects but like do some i don't know that's like my only like again i'm also analyzing it from one shot at the end which is the only moment when you get to see the moon knight suit but it did feel like very disjointed from like oh yeah you're seeing oscar isaac there in person and then it just looks like there's nobody here and there's like a cgi moon knight fighting a cgi like demon right like there's the 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 cinematographers literally like filming emptiness i mean is that room even real maybe it's all a green screen at this point i don't know the suit of it reminded me a little bit of the iron man suit towards the end especially because you know Mm -hmm. in iron man one it's a it's a suit he gets in and out of whereas by end game it's the one that sort of it's that nano that like grows yeah. out of the thing he's got on his chest mm-hmm. whereas this sort of very similarly i suppose mummifies him and it's like yeah yeah i do think it did stand out it was like it doesn't help it's white and you know it's a dark mm-hmm. just, this brilliant white man stood yeah fighting a yeah. fighting a, a jackal um i also come with some bias in the fact I am a massive Moon Knight fan. My cat is named Spectre after Mark Spectre. So 
<laughs> I too feel like my opinion is not the sort of person you should come to if you want critical analysis of Moon Knight. Uh-huh. I thought it was great, unsurprisingly. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't bad. I mean, I don't think anyone, it was great. It was a typical MCU product. Uh, I don't, of these two episodes I've seen, I don't think it's my favourite of the Disney Plus shows yet. I think that still mm-hmm. belongs to Hawkeye, which I think was consistently strong throughout, whereas the others have wobbled. Um, but I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. I liked Arthur Harrow as a villain that's not necessarily, you know, outright bad. He's doing what he thinks is 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 good i suppose in some sense way you know he's very much like the the precogs from the minority report judging people before they have done right. anything at mm-hmm. all and you know that's that's interesting at least uh but my biggest criticism is stephen grant i find it he is quite annoying and mm-hmm. you know episode 1 focuses entirely on stephen grant as does a lot right. of episode two. Maybe it's because I wanted Mark Spector like right out the gate. Um, and I yeah. didn't get that. So perhaps that is what has led into my opinion. But I, he is quite annoying. Um, mm-hmm. And admittedly, what is going on around him is utterly insane. So I feel like I too would be yeah. somewhat flabbergasted. But He's like a constant ball of exactly. anxiety throughout and the whole thing. Yeah. I do like the voice of Konshu, and I like their interactions together. Uh, I thought it was an interesting choice. In Konshu yes, looked he great did. though, and that's here's the thing. I, I criticize the CGI of uh, the Moon Knight suit. On the other hand, the Konshu, I don't yep. know, God, I guess is he's a god. Um, it's terrifying. Like that scene in the elevator when the old woman is, is like, you know, like just that split second of seeing him. Like that is some creepy stuff. Yeah, I was a big fan of that too. I liked how he was... I was expecting him to be very... I don't know. Just a bit dry. But now he's more of a mm-hmm. dry wit. Uh, and his interaction with, with Stephen Grant is, is, was, was fun was fun mm-hmm. to watch. Um, yeah, Moon Knight. We'll watch the rest. Although, even if I said it was the worst thing I'd seen, I also would say I'd watch the Still rest. Still watch. Yeah. I'll catch up though. By the time we have our, our next episode, I will have I will be you know whatever just came out. I will have seen. It's just my 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 family was here visiting me in Canada, and so it's been hard to keep up with things. So, sticking with uh, Marvel, we're going to talk because these next things I know you have, well you may have seen, but this past month I've been very busy with with studying, and one of the things so you know I one of the ways I wind down is, is you know TV and such, but. I find it, it can be quite hard to balance doing stuff and watching TV at the same time. So I've spent mm-hmm. a lot of time this past month watching the animated Spider-Man shows from across time, uh, starting with right. that 90s. I haven't gone all the way back to Spider-Man and his amazing friends, but starting with the 90s Spider-Man. And so I thought I've written here my just initial impressions of each one. But before I get, have you seen any of animated spider-man shows yeah i've seen the 90s one i would say to completion i don't remember it because i saw it when it was coming out but i do remember that it kind of ends in uh, i don't know yeah no go right for you have you seen that spoiler warning at the start Uh, it it ends 
it ends uh, with Mary Jane disappearing, and it's kind of looks like it's teasing something else. Like she ends up being like yeah. a water clone, and then it, it it ends up like not going anywhere. Right? Like it just it kind of ends in that cliffhanger. And so I remember like going through it and seeing all of that at the time when I was a kid, and like really wanting to know what happened next. I've seen that, and I've seen uh, Ultimate mm-hmm. Spider-Man. I don't know if you if yep. you know that one, but I also really enjoyed that one. I think it is written by uh, Chris Yost, who ends up like he wrote like one of the the Thor movies. He he was like our co-writer for with Craig Kyle for X Men Evolution. I think yeah, the is that one, the one the the one yeah. that had X twenty three, whichever one that one was. And so yeah, so I, I mean like I, I I think both of them capitalize on the ability of spider-man's good characters like there's a lot of really cool villains that he can he can fight um i do think and i haven't seen it but i would believe that both x-men the 90s animated series and spider-man the the 90s series like they both feel like 90s series and and i would say right like that's probably true um but yeah so i have seen it but i would be curious to see like you know what you thought on your revisit of this uh, show. My first bullet point under 90 Spider-Man is pure nostalgic joy. <laughs> that is, you're absolutely right. It's very much a 90 show. So far down, Ed on Fox Kids, no one has a gun. Like they all fire lasers or goodness knows mm-hmm. what else. But when I think of Spider-Man characters, it's this that I jump to. Like when I think of the Kingpin or Morbius, which I'll talk about later, or the lizard or any of those you know it's this incarnation that immediately springs to mind and it has that killer theme tune by uh, Steve Perry from from Aerosmith which is something i will never forget so then from there i went on oh he's also the peter parker voice i think of the most uh, you know i've got we've got these live action Spider-Man, but that peter i mean clearly i'm not that big a fan as to find out who it is but that peter parker is <laughs> is the peter parker i think of that was so. Then there was a 3D CG Spider Man show that aired on MTV. It came out in 2003, which means I it that. does not look great. Like 3D, 2003, not a good time for 3D CG animation. Yeah. And that very much. We were too bold with what we thought we could it's do. It's like the Star Wars prick because I like, can't get any better than this. Oh no, it, it got yeah. better. Now this looks abysmal. Um, but it's got Neil Patrick Harris plays the titular role of Spider-Man, and that it was it was it was different, both for good and for bad. <laughs> uh, I then went on to watch Spectacular Spider-Man. This was the only one that I couldn't find on uh, Disney Plus, but it's found on Netflix in the UK. Sorry, that's the one that I think I meant because that's the one that has a song, yep. Spectacular, yep. but right that one. Yeah, that's the one that was written by Chris Jones. I don't know what uh, I you call said. It, also, Spider-Man, which is the one that came afterwards so this yeah. show i haven't finished it but it is brilliant like utterly yeah. it's only 26 episodes which saddens me a bit but sometimes it's better to have uh leave you wanting more in case you want it it was killed off by yeah. the disney marvel buyout and the by the disney acquisition yeah and so was Wolverine yeah. and the X-Men, which is another show that I also enjoyed at the same time. Uh, Ult- uh, Spectacular Spider-Man has kind of like the Wind Waker problem. Yep. I don't know if you're familiar with the Legend of Zelda games, but, you know, they did Ocarina of Time, which was a great mm-hmm. game. And then mm-hmm. they did Majora's Mask that was like reusing the assets of the other one. And then they did Wind Waker and people saw the style and it's like, this this is weird. This is like too cartoony. I don't want to check this out. But it ended up being like an amazing game that now in like retrospect, we're looking back and it's like, oh, yeah, it's brilliant. And Spectacular Spider-Man too, like it has like a very distinctive 
looking like yes. it's for kids kind of like animation style especially mm-hmm. compared to the 90s one and so i think a lot of people are giving it a skip but it just story-wise like it, it, it it's really good and like the the friendships and like it's just it's really yeah, great like, i was I'm a surprised big fan of it. at some of the themes like it you know the the previous two shows they're very much kid shows and this i'm not saying it's still also a kid show but you know it's tackling problems that teenagers actually face beyond you know here's a guy that's dressed mm-hmm. up like a rhino that can run through buildings you know peter parker is having yeah. relationship issues at school and juggling between trying to be a good friend and working in with currency lab but then he takes photos of of the lizard and loses his job Lo- not loses his job he gets a job with with the bugle but loses his friends in the process because to them you know he ran off to take pictures where of course we know he went off to be to be spider-man but I think that's mm-hmm. not just down to this show, but one of the things that Spider-Man has always done well, mostly, is the is the balance between Peter Parker and uh, uh, and Spider-Man. Well, I'd say it's a better dichotomy than than Batman Bruce Wayne because it's always like, well, which one is the mask? Whereas in Peter Parker's case, you know, they are both crucial aspects of his life that just most of the time don't mm-hmm. gel together. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like the balancing act is a big part of of what makes Spider Man different. Um, the voice acting is great in this show too. Uh, the guy that plays the Tombstone um, in the first episode is Keith David, who is brilliant, yes. and he has like that really really raspy one. And then he's replaced later mm-hmm. by Kevin Michael Richardson, but yeah. he keeps on imitating kind of like the voice that he was going for, and so it just ends up being solid. Um, also, I think it's like one of the most gratifying payoffs of a Sinister Six that, you know, we get to see on screen in a long time. Like they kind of take their, their time building up these characters and kind of throw you some, some curveballs over who mm-hmm. ends up taking what suit and so on. And then, you know, all of a sudden he's out there facing six of his, his bad guys. And it's pretty fun. I don't know if you've gone to that part yet, but Absolutely. overall. Yeah, and we touched on it briefly, but the art style is, it's different. But this time, not different in a... Oh, it's mm-hmm. different. It's different, and that's that's a good thing. Much like Wind Waker, it's different, and that's great. It did sort of remind me of some sort of amalgamation between the ben, original Ben 10 and the colourings of something like the Superman animated series. That sort of like paler colouring combined with something mm-hmm. bright and yeah. poppy like, like Ben 10. And that... Everyone's got big, massive pupils like they're off their face constantly. Maybe it's something in that New York air that's been making people behave like this. But brilliant show. I will watch the rest and will recommend it to to anyone. So Disney buys Marvel. This show goes away, replaced by Ultimate Spider-Man. And it is very much a modern day Marvel product. Where, you know, the Avengers show up and it's the Avengers from the Avengers cartoon. And mm-hmm. loads of side characters, clearly designed to sell toys. And, you know, that's has that's been a thing since the 80s, so I can't judge it for that. But yeah. they're all characters that either had a show or would go on to have shows. So, like, Cloak and Dagger had that show on Freeform, Iron Fist is in it, Luke Cage is in it. Admittedly, we do get some deep cuts, like Agent Venom is in it for a, a quite a lot of time. Scarlet Spider is in it. Uh, White Tiger, the female, what is it, Ava? The female White Tiger, whatever her surname is. She is the predominant White Tiger in it. 
Unlike Spectacular Spider-Man, the Sinister Six shows up constantly. Like every other episode, it's, oh, it's this new version of the Sinister Six. This time it's got Craven instead of Hydro Man. It's like, okay, I get it. Right. Let's have something else, please. That this is very much, of all of them, this seemed like the most kid-friendly of, of, of all of them. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. It is a kid show after all, but uh, it isn't the one I would recommend. That's Spectacular Spider-Man. Also, it's only two two seasons. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I haven't seen this one. Any praise that I was giving earlier was meant for Spectacular Spider-Man. And I wouldn't get, you know, it's called Ultimate Spider-Man, but Miles Morales in it very little. Like, he's in it in the final couple of seasons where they changed the, the mm-hmm. title from Ultimate Spider-Man... Well, just that to like Ultimate Spider-Man and the Web Warriors, and he's and he's running around with him and Miles and Amadeus Cho is in it, but he's not. He doesn't go on to be the Hulk. He's in the Civil War um, Spider-Man suit. That Civil War from the books, the Iron Spider suit, not Civil War, right? Um, from the yeah, MCU. Yeah. It's like all right, fair enough. Is what it is. Fair One enough, character yeah. that is consistent throughout all of these is. Morbius, the living vampire, and now he has made the jump from <laughs> from animation where arguably perhaps he should have stayed into uh, real life, uh, portrayed by Jared Leto in 2022's hit, financial hit, Morbius. And it saddens me that it's a financial hit because that means it might come back. Because good God, this has got to be one of the worst films I've seen in quite a while. I mean, I quite Morbius is quite an interesting character. You know, like all Spider-Man villains, animal-based, and usually something has gone wrong to lead them to having these animal powers. Morbius, living vampire, not dead, but sucks people's blood for life. Um, so in this, we've got Michael Morbius. Mm-hmm. He's a, a cripple, uh, and he ends up experimenting on bats and becomes Morbius, living vampire. Uh, oh. I mean, there's just so many questions I have as to why this film, one, was made, and two, why it was made like this. Why it was made, it seems like the whole film was made just so they could put the post credit scene that they wanted at the end. Do you know what the post credit scene is? I have seen it. I don't understand it. Like, it, so... It does this relate to Spider Man? Like the the mm. far, far well, no way home. Does that, it relate so to No way home? So, you Adrian Toomes from Spider Man Homecoming is in this, not as some sort of doppelganger or someone else. It's Adrian Toomes from Spider Man Homecoming. He just appears inside a jail cell, looks in a mirror behaves as if he looks totally different, even though he looks exactly the same, and then just says, I hope the food's better. What? And then that's followed up by another scene where he somehow got the vulture suit back or he's rebuilt it or whatever has happened in this new reality because it's unclear. All we know is that he came into it, so it can't be based in... Well, it's based in the Venom universe. We know this because Venom is mentioned at some point by... Tyrese Gibson, who plays an FBI agent in one of the most strange bits of casting I've seen in in a long time. Uh, (laughs) He meets Michael Morbius 
and then says so- I can't even remember now something like oh we we could team up and do some good and then says something about Spider-Man and it's like but there is no Spider-Man here Michael Morbius who says something like interesting should be like who the hell is Spider-Man what are you saying to me <laughs> it doesn't make sense as to why Adrian Toomes even why did he cross realities in according to the logic of No Way Home you know well, actually, now thinking about it, maybe that is it. It was the people that knew who Spider-Man was got sent back, right? Mm-hmm. But then he also did a spell that yeah. made everyone forget who he was. But was that... I can't remember now. Was that before yeah. or after? So everyone, so that means what? Adrian Toons remembered who Peter Parker was and then got sent to a different reality to the one where there is no Spider-Man, at least that we know of, Um to meet Michael Morbius. Now, the trailer, if you remember the trailer, had a picture of Spider-Man on a wall. I think it was the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. That scene, not in this. That scene where where Adrian Toomes and Michael Morbius <laughs> talk on the street, not in this. Adrian Toomes only appears at the end. And after doing a bit of reading, they reshot scenes with Adrian Toomes just to put them in the post credit scene. It's madness. The film is dark there's a fight scene. So Matt Smith plays the bad guy who, like in all origin superhero films, has the same powers as Michael Morbius because they were both cripples. They grew up together. He ends up taking this serum that Michael Morbius was like, don't take it, it'll turn you into a vampire. And of course, he's like, great, I'm a vampire. I'm going to start killing people. And so they have to have a fight. And they have a fight and they fly through a building or, or something and there's rubble everywhere. And it's so dark, you have literally no idea what is going on. It's just noise of rubble and things happening, but you don't know what's happening. I was I went to see it with a friend and I said it would be better. They could have done something different here and had a superhero film where there was no, no villain. You should have gone with like a classic vampire story. He gets these powers and the whole 90 minutes is him learning to deal with it. Right at the beginning, he gets the powers and he kills some people on a boat. And he's very, you know, distraught about it. He's like, oh my God, I've killed all these people. And then he's like, oh, doesn't matter. Um, Morbius a living vampire now. I can fly. Yeah, don't, 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 don't do it. Don't watch it. I thought, uh, what was it? Let There Be Carnage was bad. But this, this is on a whole new scale of god-awful. I didn't watch this movie because I was 100% certain it would be bad because they mm-hmm. pushed this movie forward like a good year and a half. And it's like, that's typically a sign of like, they don't know where to fit this because it's not good and they're trying to uh, minimize their losses. Or, you know, and also, I guess, you know, Morbius is a weird character in general. I do remember that in the 90s, yes. he had like these weird little suckers on his hands during the show because they couldn't show him biting people. No, so he, I wondered, he, will they have that or will he be biting people? He bites people. I, know, I, I, no, I, I thought they I, might I go with the suckers on his hands. He bites people. Okay. No. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like, I think that there's a lot that can be said about Marvel's uh, ability to make movies. But then when you look at superhero movies that don't, like Marvel superhero movies that don't involve like the Marvel studio, you can see that it's like, even if it, it's repetitive, they are putting a lot more, um, I don't know, like quality assurance care and into attention. care and attention to their movies. Uh, I think if I were to guess that Adrian Toomes and Morbius probably had a lot more Spider-Man in them 
in before like this final cut and just the idea of this multiverse where now technically like if sony wanted to do uh, a toby Maguire film it is technically still in the mcu right because yeah. uh the the latest uh, tom holland film kind of connected them all and so i think they probably cut all that out because they're like we don't want to lock in some shit now to this to this anchor of a movie like so just remove as much as you can and then we will rethink like how and what we do in the future and so it ends up being entirely disjointed like i I can't imagine that both those end scenes were meant to be end scenes like Mm -hmm. one of them probably was like an act three kind of thing and the other one was the end scene but now it's just like a disjointed mess where they were like just tease that at like throw it at the end like you know try to make the 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 plot as simple as possible not involving the spider-man while we sony figure out like what we want to do like is is it going to be andrew garfield is it going to be toby like are we what are we like madam webb is apparently coming up next too right so i think like they like after they saw the success of no way home they probably went back to the drawing board and like okay we need to rethink like what we're doing here and that's probably why morbius was delayed so much and also why it's so bad think about it 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 would have originally come out before no way home and therefore it would have made even less sense yeah i would love to have seen the original cut perhaps the additional scenes they took out with agent tombs might have made it better but it would have been like what agent tombs where's he come from I'm going to try and evacuate Morbius from my mind until <laughs> until I need to. Oh yeah, it's Madam Web and then Craven the Hunter is also mm-hmm. on the card. So look forward to the Sinister Six in, in a couple in a couple of years' time. Um right, but there we go. That is the it was much more than MCU roundup this month. We talked about DC, we talked about <laughs> animated shows and one of the worst films. Ever. I have one more thing. Oh, no, I mean, by the do. time by the time this comes out, I would imagine that it's come out in the UK because I think from what I've seen, it hasn't yet. But I saw recently everything everywhere all at once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have seen the trailer for this movie. It is basically uh, a multiverse film. So if you uh, if you're out there gonna find getting your tickets for Doctor Strange, you know if you're familiar with these concepts, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Um, I did review it for Lear Butter. If you wanna go read the review, I gave it five out of five. It is an incredible movie. Michelle Yao, who's the main star of this, she does... No other actor will do what she had to do for this movie. This movie is a comedy. It is a drama. It is a sci-fi. Like, it, it changes its tone and, and requirements so many times that, like, uh, the work that is done here is kind of, like, unparalleled. It is 100% an amazing movie, so please go check it out in theaters when you can. Yes, I, I read your review because I am very excited to to see it unfortunately it has no uk date yet i thought it was already yeah. out i saw it was out in the city. i was like oh great i'll go it's like oh no just just no when no when <laughs> which is which is which is very very sad but yeah i was going to ask you about it later so it well you gave it five out of five so it is that that good I loved it, and I was like, "Rotten Tomatoes now." Yeah, it it was amazing. It's like uh, I I called it. I think in my review, like "Turning Red" meets "Multiverse of Madness," which "Turning Red" is the Pixar movie that came out recently (laughs) about a girl turning into uh, a giant red panda. But really, like it explores kind of like intergenerational trauma and like growing up in an immigrant family and kind of like the expectations that are placed on you that aren't really placed on the rest of your friends, right? And the other people that you know and how that kind of shapes the person that you become. And so, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Definitely recommend it. One, thought I'd, one part I did think was interesting about your review is you mentioned that, you know, 
people don't need to learn what a multiverse is anymore. You know, complain as you might about Marvel Studios and their constant chat. You know, everyone multiverse. You know, I could ask Joe Schmo from the street, "What's a multiverse?" And he'd be like, "Oh, it's a, it's a, you know, well, it's in the name, I guess. It's not that hard of a term, yeah. but you know, everyone knows but now. It, it's multiple realities focusing on the same people, which is exactly." And you can you can skip that part altogether and then just continue moving forward with your story, which is kind of what they're doing. And I just think that there's always this conversation over like, you know, this like, what does it mean to be a film versus movie? And it's like so pretentious, like very gatekeepy about, you know, like these are the good movies that we should be talking about and these aren't. And I think the Daniels, the directors of this movie, they were like you can think whatever you think, but like we're basing like this movie is so effective because it pulls stuff from like 2001 the space odyssey it pulls stuff from the matrix it pulls stuff from like ratatouille like it it doesn't dismiss anything it's just like you know like we now all have this shared language of movies that we understand like instead of wasting my time trying to rewrite that or pretend like oh you know this is what it means to be good about this just like everything that you know we're going to use that and then we're going to move forward into telling like a great great story which is what this is cannot wait why they still do staggered releases of films, I do not understand. Like, yeah, it's not I know. as if it's they're so sending Especially... physical film cans anymore. It's probably just like a zip file that they can put on someone's Dropbox. But... Yeah, I mean, I used to work at a theater, and I, you, the, it's literally hard drives and USB sticks that you get sent over now to upload the films into like what they call the DCP that then the projector pulls from to play like in theater six at this time at theater five at this time so 100 percent, it's not film anymore so i don't know why why they can't just release it all at once they should be releasing uh everything everywhere (laughs) all at once very good very good uh what was also well not very good was quite good was batman cataclysm volume one so we finally after three months have actually made it to the event we had not Batman Cataclysm Volume 1. That was the first part. That's a typo on my thing. Batman No Man's Land Volume 1. We had Batman Cataclysm. There was an earthquake in Gotham. Then we had two thick volumes of Road to No Man's Land, which focused... Well, it progressed the story very little. It was focused more on the day-to-day general living of the people in Gotham. But eventually that ended with Gotham. The bridges around Gotham were destroyed. People were given a chance to evacuate those that stayed behind, stuck there. The inmates of Arkham were let out. Uh, Bruce tried to go to Washington to, you know, stop this from happening. Failed. There was an introduction of this character named Nick Scratch, who was like a scientist who then did some experiments on himself and sort of ended up looking like Mr. Sinister and was no longer the sort of stereotypical scientist you might imagine that you know that massive nerd lives in his parents basement but was now super intelligent buff and also was like a rock star now but anyway he was running some sort of crime gang and had something against Gotham that was never quite clear and so he ended up sort of playing with the government and uh, Gotham was became a no man's land and I thought great this Nick Scratch character is quite interesting I can't wait to read more about him because presumably he will be the focal villain of Batman No Man's Land. Nick Scratch makes a grand total of zero appearances in in No Man's Land Volume 1. In fact, I was also surprised it's not... It's just two stories, both with very little Batman. So 
it seems to be continuing the trend set right up in Batman Cataclysm in that this whole event is very much just this is what is happening now that Gotham has been struck by an earthquake in that case or this is what is happening now that Batman is a no man's land. So it sort of reminded me of something like CSI where every episode is something totally different and there may be some overarching narrative connecting it all together. So there is some sort of plot progression, but the two stories. So the first one is No Law and a New Order, written by Bob Gale with, lucky for me, art by Alex Maleve. He drew that very short story way back in Cataclysm, so I was very pleased to see him back for a whole Mm -hmm. story here. It was inked by Wayne Foucher, colours by Matt Hollingsworth and lettered by Willie Schubert. So this is very much a story setting up the new status quo of Gotham City. So the city is now divided into a bunch of territories run by different gangs. You've got like the area controlled by the Penguin, which is a very much a rich person's paradise. You've got the area controlled by Black Mask. You've got, you know, you understand. Different areas of Gotham run mm-hmm. by different people. And then it also mentions that the Joker is unaccounted for, and people like Killer Croc and Poison Ivy, you know, they think they might be in some places, but no one has actually seen them because people go into them and never come out. So that's Gotham now. And we also learned that the GCPD, or what is left, have sort of, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, set up their own gang in the tri-corner area. They are now the Blue Boys, and, you know, obviously it's their goal to try and make their way back across Gotham and take more territory for themselves. Of course, all the other gangs, there's a lot of infighting. Territories and uh, state lines, I suppose, are constantly changing. So the Blue Boys aspect of the story is something that I think superhero stories and something Batman, I think, does especially well, which is how far are you willing to go to do the right thing? So at the start, they have a very small area of, of Gotham. And obviously they want to change that. So they're in the Tricorn area. That's not where GCPD HQ is. So they want to get back to GCPD HQ and mm-hmm. you know take the land before that with them. So you know get to GCPD HQ, take a larger swathe of of Gotham. And you know they're trying to do the right thing with the limited resources they have. But Gotham PD is in like. Big, I think it's like the Demon Heads or something, some no-name gang. It doesn't matter. Uh, is is where GCPDHQ is. So they don't have the forces, the manpower, the resources to just barge in there, shoot first, ask questions later. You know, get their HQ back. So there's this officer there, this officer uh, Petit, who who he is very much like that. He will do whatever it takes. At one point, he shoots a bunch of gang members and blames it on another gang to to like start a gang war so the two gangs kill each other so then the what is the blue boys the gcpd whatever you want to call them do have enough of a upper hand to just take this area back and in the end that is what they do you know these two gangs fighting each other both gangs lose so gcpd wins and it's all like well you know, all these people have died because of this gang war that the GCPD themselves started. So, yes, they did take all this area of Gotham back. And, you know, the people that live there are now 
safe in in quotation marks but you know that that is clearly not a normal police thing to do in fact this officer petit goes so far as after they've taken gcpd you know they rank they round up what's left of, of the gangs and it's like oh what do we do with these people because we don't have a prison anymore um and so jim's like oh well we can slowly let them back out into society after we're certain that they you know are okay and then eventually it's agreed that no what we'll do is we'll set them free but into a different territory basically you know they're just like messengers you know gcpd set us free but that whole area now is run by gcpd don't go there otherwise you'll be killed and this officer petit is like that's not going to send a message and just shoots one of them point blank in the head and he's like there you go that's the message sent and so i think no you know he's still in it so i'm hoping that this is a narrative thread carried forward this sort of moral quandary that the gcpd are facing and how mm-hmm. they are adapting to survive in in no man's land so barbara gordon not batgirl but uh his his jim gordon's wife or girlfriend whatever it is uh you know she is very much on the case of you know you've got to do what you've got to do jim don't let it eat down at you but i mean that's a pretty optimistic view of you started a gang war and all these people died that is on you so i think i can understand why jim might be having some some moral dilemma inside uh as i said earlier there's very little batman in these so there's a new bat character on the scene the bat it's a female um and then it's never really explained why batman's not around I presume it was just him making his way back from Washington DC to to Gotham but even then people like mm-hmm. Barbara Gordon Oracle Batgirl Barbara Gordon or Dick Grayson Tim Drake no one has heard from Bruce it's like well where has he actually been eventually he he does it's a Batman book he does reappear and uh, he ends up taking taking down uh, the ventriloquist which is I guess nineties Batman really loved. He was the main antagonist of Batman Cataclysm. So Ventriloquist back at it again. This time with his most common, well-known puppet, Scarface. And you know, Scarface is, you know, he has a territory to himself. And the these people are more the mentally impaired folks. They are, you know, they will do whatever Scarface says just because they need someone to sort of dictate the rules of their life and batman doesn't quite understand this and he takes scarface down he's like you you're all free to go and then they just sort of lost like i, I can't go where how do i eat so then it did give me sort of a bit of dark knight returns vibes where you know in that batman's got that little gang of people that do do his bidding and so that's somewhat represented here where they don't really do his bidding but they sort of are followers of of the batman so to speak alex malieve looks amazing as always and the paler coloring by matt hollingsworth does set an appropriate tone for the book like if it was you know alex malieve's art is quite serious okay if it was paired with a colorist that was very bright that would not be a good pick so a good alex malieve matt hollingsworth good pairing here so fear of faith is the second story with uh, a change in the creative team so Devin K. Grayson writes the story with art by Dale Eaglesham. The inking is done by Brat and Aaron Soud. Colours by Pamela Rambo. 
who you may remember is the colorist of Wild Last Man, and then lettered by Todd Klein. So this is, as you may have guessed by the fear in the title, is a Scarecrow-focused story. We haven't actually really seen that much of in the three preceding books, though that, that was good, but there's also a heavy en emphasis on the Huntress and her method of justice, which is much more violent than that of Batman's, and what this means. But the main crux of the story is there's a church, and this church has become some sort of refugee safe house for all of those people that didn't manage to leave Gotham for whatever reason. Either like they were illegal immigrants, they couldn't really leave Gotham because they would be arrested, or or they were ex-cons, or whatever. These people are stuck in Gotham. So this church has now become a safe haven for them. It's run by a couple of priests, um, and they have taken in the Scarecrow as well. He has taken refuge in this church, and... Uh, for some reason that isn't quite clear to me, he starts sowing the seeds of fear and doubt. It's like setting up these priests to make mistakes. In the end, one of them ends up taking arms from the penguin because they need money and food. Um, so he's like, oh, I'll keep these guns safe in the church because no one will think to check there. But then Scarecrow, he knows this because he set it all up. So then he starts telling other gang members uh, of different gangs. So then the church becomes a, a battleground. Batman gets involved. Huntress is involved. The GCPD. You know, the, the church becomes a, a focal point of all these warring factions. And it seems that you know, the Scarecrow is... What it came to me... The Scarecrow is setting this up to be like, look, there is no such thing as hope. Fear is the only way. I love fear. I'm the Scarecrow. Um... But obviously, both the Scarecrow and the Huntress learn that there is always hope, and uh, it's not the best story I've ever read. I mean, it didn't really make any sense. Like they take the Scarecrow in, and then in the next panel, he's collecting rats to put in their food, so they don't have any food. It's like, okay. I mean, I feel like if it, if I was the Scarecrow, I'd be like. Surely there's a limit to my villainy. It was like, okay, maybe I've just got to think, focus on me and surviving. But it does end with the Scarecrow sort of throwing the Scarecrow suit in a fire. So it's like, oh, maybe now it's back to Jonathan Crane. There is no Scarecrow anymore. I'm sure that'll be a plot though that's never picked up again. Uh, but it, let's say, not the best story I've ever read, but... It was at least interesting. A story yes. nonetheless. Yes, exactly. And it was more interesting to read something that's more philosophical in nature rather than actual fisticuffs. Uh, the art team is, is obviously different from that of the first. And it's a lot brighter and more animated than Alex Maleev and Matt Hollingsworth. But the tone it gives off, at least to me, does give it the whole book a consistent feel. You know, like sometimes you read these compendiums and you're reading it and then suddenly you like it was a big problem I had with uh, Age of Apocalypse I read a bit you turn the page and it looks totally different and that takes you right out of the story like you get to this uh, fear of phase like okay clearly the art is different but the mandate I guess from DC on high was this is the tone try and draw in colour like this so I'll be interested to see not knowing what the creative teams are for the next four books whether it'll be these two sets of creative teams, whether it be... I don't even know whether it's two stories per book, much like this. I guess I'll find out. But I'm interested to see if the tone continues. And something about tone is something I'll bring up a bit later when I give you my Why the Last Man thoughts. But 
before we get to that, tell us about what you have read, Rodrigo. Everyone's had enough of my prattling on. <laughs> um, like I mentioned, I was a bit busy this month, so I didn't get to read too much. But uh, I, I listened to this pop culture podcast called X-Ray Vision. It's hosted by Jason Concepcion, formerly of The Ringer's Binge Mode, I think is like what he may be most known for. And he has a variety of co-hosts. One of my favorites is Rosie Knight. They recently, in an episode, interviewed Grant Morrison, who is a famous comic book writer, I would say, I guess. And he talked about how he he approached some of his work. I mean, like, early on, he kind of did it very straightforward. And then afterwards, he did it a lot, like, thinking, it, thinking about comic book as an art form. Um, I don't know that he's everyone's cup of tea, but he's interesting. I do think he, he's different, yeah. at least. Like, you know, I think there's some people who you can kind of expect, like, uh, you know, a, a regular superhero comic book from. And then there's some people who are trying to do something different. And whether or not that lands yeah. is up to you. Um, so I'm a big X-Men fan, so I've read his new X-Men fan twice before. Now this is going to be my third time going through it. Uh, and so I decided to give it another chance. Now, there are a couple things here. Number one, a lot of this is illustrated by Ethan Ben Syver or Skyver, I'm not sure how you say his name, who has very recently, not very recently, I think for a while now, um, been behind what I think they call oh, Comics yeah. Gate, which is the equivalent of Gamer Gate. Uh, he says some incredibly vile shit and... Uh, you know, I, I I just, I guess I say that to say that I, I by no means want you to go out and support his work yep. if you don't want to. I just happen to have these already, you know, previous to his recent uh, interesting turn, to say the least. But anyways, you know, like, the, take that into account. I just I, I just want you to know that because I don't, I don't want to, like, tell people, oh, yeah, go out and buy this book and then suddenly feel guilty for doing something that you didn't want to. Anyways, I decided to reread them. Uh, I, I found them to be very, very interesting, and especially in the way of... Uh, so, New X-Men, in case if you don't know, uh, Grant Morrison started with issue 114, I believe. 113, if you had been reading regular X-Men, it wasn't called New X-Men, just X-Men 113, was the issue that wrapped up, I think it was called Eve of Destruction, in which Magneto was basically threatening to... I don't know, like the equivalent of nuking the human world. And so the X-Men had to go in. And at this point, I think like a bunch of the X-Men were missing. Um, uh, Xavier had been trapped on, I think, Genosha. Genosha. Um, and so the X-Men, they go and they find like a ragtag team of really the the weirdest mutants <laughs> ever. Uh, also including, unfortunately, uh, Dazzler, who was... Oh probably not meant to be in that same category, but she had just escaped from the Mojoverse, which is, side note, a, a concept that I've always just hated. I don't know if you're a big fan of the Mojoverse. Uh, not really, no. I, I, I dislike it entirely. Um, but anyways, she escaped from the Mojoverse. She joined the team. She was kind of, like, messed up mentally. They they end up winning the day, as the X-Men often do. Yeah. And that kind of wrapped up. It, it ends with Wolverine, sorry, that rather important plot point. It ends with a, a Wolverine stabbing uh, Magneto. Um, I think later on, maybe you find out that he survived. But for now, that's kind of where things left off. X-Men 114, uh, it, it has like the kind of like the main X-Men that were around. It was uh, Gene, Scott, and Wolverine at the end, and Professor X. And so they bring in Emma Frost and Beast, and they kind of complete the team. They also look very, very different than your regular superhero, you know, like bright-colored, uh, light-gray looks. Um, they all have like these modern leather jacket very fluorescent yellow x's on them i think that the design work is all done by frank quietly who is the penciler for all the first arc grant morrison um writes the 
obviously all the this this run uh the anchors are tim townsend mark morales and dan green uh for the annual that's also part of kind of like that first run the art is done by lionel Yu and it introduces zorn which is another character that becomes important in this run anyways as you start reading you can tell that there is already like a replotting of the perspective that we have of the x-men's uh purpose and kind of you know raison d'etre right like it's like they are discriminated and hated by humanity and it begs a question in a world where we have like the runaways and the avengers and like all these other non-mutant powered people why specifically do people hate mutants right mm -hmm. and um you know in the past it's obviously like well in the new and in the present it's meant to be like a simile or a metaphor for other things that you know the characteristics that we have as humanity that we do discriminate based upon but it you know like there needed to be like an in-story reason for why humanity would hate mutants and not anybody else and so grant morrison starts this run by replotting what that reason would be and they talk about how in the past like humans or like homo sapiens they ended up uh eliminating their competition or i guess at, at that point their competition for the natural elements which was like the neanderthals and so uh he says that what's going to happen in the future is that the mutants are going to then replace the humans in the same kind of violent aggressive way and the, the mutants will be the inheritors of the earth and i think since the, this this run which i think was like in the year 2000 or so 2001 maybe um, that's kind of become a staple of of X Men, you know, like how the the, and I think it also kind of digs into like a lot of what is happening in the world right now, right? Like I, I mean, I hope you're not too familiar with white supremacist uh, tenets, but like they they talk a lot about the replacement theory and like you know how they are going to be, and like that's kind of what Grant Morrison, I think, say what you will about him, but he does he is he is quick prescient of like the changes that are coming in the future and so on. And so, anyways, it digs a lot into that. That is the reason why humanity is so afraid and hateful of mutants because they know that they are being replaced in the long run, and that it's like this this inev inevitability and this fear of of not being able to stop the, this kind of I guess apocalypse for them drives them to do some crazy stuff. Um, this is all, by the way, narrated by Cassandra Nova, which is like a very interesting concept. Um, Grant Morrison does a lot of like, this is a story that I need to tell. So I'm just going to make up some new shit. And like, why shouldn't I? It's as ridiculous as anything that was before. Yeah, like he, he, he does uh, secondary mutations, which were not a thing prior to this. He just like randomly introduced like you have a, you, like my four main characters now have secondary mutations. Beast turns into a cat. Um, for those who may not know him before this, he was like the X-Men 90s animated series where he was kind of like, I don't know, what is that, more of like a bear with a human face? Yeah. I don't know exactly what he was, but he was so, like yeah, I, blue, I, very... I quickly Google when you talked about the costumes, what they look like. It's like, funny. So what, how do you prefer the Beast? Because we've had a whole gamut. We've had, back in the day, it was just a man. A man. And then he became a blue man that was a furry. Man, yeah. And now here he's very... He's a beauty cat, and the beast like yeah and i think that's on purpose a beauty of the beast comparison uh i think at this point my mind is used to him being this like feline thing i think if he went back to his previous thing i would be like that's weird now and if he changed further that would also be weird uh i think at the time it was very jarring for me i remember like i, I felt like he looks wrong this doesn't seem right he should be like that pointy haired yeah. like blue 90s animated one but I think now it works. I mean, again, I've made my peace with it. It's been like 20-something years now. I'm not holding on to that grudge. Um, but yeah, like, so Cassandra Nova is also a, a concept that he just kind of brought in because it made sense for his story. It's basically, uh, if you don't know, it's uh, Xavier's 
conjoined twin that Xavier tried to kill in the womb because he could tell that she was like violent and so she ended up surviving and does become like this horrible villain and she's a great villain in general but you know it's just like brand new she's also like already like uh I, I'm guessing Xavier and her are like 60, 60 year old people so it's like did she wait all this time she was just chilling there I don't know anyways um It starts off with Wolverine and Cyclops going out to Ecuador to rescue a mutant called Ugly John, whose mutant power is basically to have three faces. That's another thing that Grant Morrison, like, kind of changes the the proposition value of being a mutant in that, like, yeah, all the X-Men are, like, these beautiful, hot people that just, like, you know, go out and do their super heroics. And it's, like, even Beast, right? He's, like, a physical mutant, but he still looks like, you know, like, they throw a tuxedo on him at several points and he goes out and wins awards. And so he's like, okay, well, what if being a mutant meant, like, just looking incredibly fucked up by our standards? And so he does a lot of that. Like, this man, literally, his only mutant power is to have three faces. He has, like, one face and then, like, one face on the side and one face on this other side, and that's it. And his nickname is Ugly John. Anyways, at the same time, Cassandra Nova is in uh, Ecuador. She is uh, explaining this kind of replacement theory to Mr. Trask, who is a dentist, but is also happened to be the, the nephew of Bolivar Trask, the man who first designed the the sentinels and all these machinery that it's just meant to to target and kill the anyone carrying the x gene and so they reach uh, a master mold which if you may not know a master mold is uh, a, a giant sentinel basically that creates sentinels within it it's like a factory of sentinels that is shaped like a sentinel it's very on the nose um, and, and, and so she explains that because of his DNA, he's able to control this factory and so on. And so she ends up then killing him and taking his DNA. So now she's in control and it, she basically tortures poor ugly John and it captures Logan and Scott Summers at the same time. Well, while she's doing like all this in Ecuador, she's like just phys- uh, mentally dueling Xavier all the way back in New York. And so just showing the extent of her power really. And um, they managed to kind of defeat Cassandra Nova at the end of the first volume, but she's injured uh, Ugly John to the point of no return. And so Scott Summers, who is uh, whose whole mission in life is to help mutants, helps Ugly John one last time by, uh, I, I, I guess, I don't know, like help, putting, putting him out of his misery. Uh, you know, like he... He just tells them, it's like, look into my eyes, you know, this will all be over soon. And then just absolutely blasts this poor, ugly mutant. Um, it's actually kind of a touching scene because it's like you just know that Scott Summers would never yeah. want to do this. But at the same time, he's like a pragmatist of like, this needs to be done by someone. I will do this and then I will get the person that did this to you. And so then he goes after Cassandra Nova and it's kind of like... Uh, what is what is this that I'm referencing? I can't do. Oh, Watchmen, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, like you think you beat me, but I I did this already like five minutes ago, and it, what she did is that she sent the Sentinels already all the way to Genosha, and you see, you know, Emma Frost being a teacher there. She always loved teaching kids, and there's one mutant that was later in a Deadpool movie, which you may know, which is Negasonic Teenage Warhead, and really, uh, in in the comic books, her thing is just being like, uh, kind of a bummer. She's just like a gothy little ghost woman and she's uh, i think maybe she's like a precog she basically tells people like everybody's going to die and shortly after every like sentinels arrive there they start destroying the entire island of uh you know it starts off with uh, 16 million people by the end it's like under 700 and even less the x-men then head over to 
the island of Genosha, they're looking at all the bodies of the dead mutants that humanity, once again, time and time again, teaches them the lesson that they do not want to coexistence, they do not want to surrender, they want the elimination of mutants. The sole survivor of the island of Genosha is Emma Frost, who has surprisingly developed a secondary mutation just in time for for the story to carry forward. She now has a diamond body. Um, I think, like, in the long run, again, m- much like Beast being a cat, this now works. Like, you know, there's there's this line in Joss Whedon, again, another person who maybe is, whose work maybe I should not be promoting, but there we are. Um, he In his astonishing X-Men, uh, he talks about, like, her loneliness and how she is her only, um, you know, she says, like, I am a diamond. By definition, I am my own best friend, you know, like a woman, etc. It just works. It works now. It works for her character. But it is something that it's like Grant Morrison was just like, I just I'll admit to happen. So I'm just going to do it. I mean, I'm not that, you know, I'm not. I like the X-Men. I'm not an X-Men expert. I just presumed she could always, you know, have diamond skin. So I guess, yeah. No, she was she was only a telepath until like the year two thousand when uh, Grant Morrison created secondary mutations and he made Beast into a cat. He returned Jean Grey's telekinesis and then he made Emma Frost like a living diamond. And I think part of that at some point may have been that he wanted to use Colossus. I might be lying here. No, I think I am lying. I think Joss Whedon wanted to use Colossus. No, somebody wanted to use Colossus and they couldn't. So as a strong person, they gave Emma Frost the diamond powers and something like that. You know, don't 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 send angry tweets at me if I got that wrong. Somehow, somewhere, there is a, a story involving Colossus, uh, Emma Frost, and her diamond powers. Anyways, uh, as we're we're developing this, we also continue learning more about who these new X Men are. You know, Scott and Jean are married; they have been married for a long time, but they give them a lot of like marital strife as they are trying to trying to talk through their relationships and you know, like t- acknowledging that they barely touched each other in months and so on. They become distracted by an even more momentous thing that is happening on screen. Uh, Charles Xavier goes on TV and says, Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Charles Xavier, also known as Professor X, and I am a mutant. Um, this storywise then jumps into uh, an annual where they go to China to rescue... Uh, it involves, again, a lot of new concepts. I don't want to get too heavy into them. It involves the U-men, which are humans that have or mutant organ transplants that allow them a certain amount of powers. It involves John Sublime, who is like almost like a bacteria type of thing that, control, that aims to control a lot of people. Uh, it involves X-Corps, which is a concept that was kind of like a militant, almost like uh, Doctors Without Borders, you know, like helping the... Charles Xavier spread his his footprint across the world and to be able to help and reach other mutants. You know, sometimes they have been more militant, sometimes they've been more business, more political, and so on, kind of depending on what uh, suits their needs. And so uh, they end up rescuing from China a mutant called Zorn, whose mutant power is to have a star in his uh, brain. He wears a metallic mask. And so on. At the same time, you know, Charles Xavier, after having opened this this can of worms of outing himself in the mutants, he basically invites all mutants to come over. Uh, it's going to be a sanctuary. And then he decides that what he wants to do is go into Shi'ar space. And so, you know, his X-Men children are supportive of his decision. They're kind of like, you know, Shi'ar's technology is all crazy and stuff. And then you find out at the end of this kind of first volume that Xavier 
is taken over by Cassandra Nova. In that moment where he had like a physical attack, he did not actually win. He lost. And so um, out there is Cassandra Nova using her influence to try to uh, to try to to do some crazy stuff with the Shi'ar tech. Uh, meanwhile, back at at the Xavier Mansion, they find uh, Cassandra Nova's body that they brought back from Ecuador, and they realize that this comatose woman is actually has Xavier inside of him. And so, uh, the second volume, I mostly skipped the second volume. It involves Angel, who is uh, an, another one of these mutants whose mutant power is like having cool wings, but then she also like vomits acid all the time uncontrollably and it's like again you know grant morrison's thing is like we always see the idea of being a mutant as this like beautiful kind of like idealistic thing that we want to take part of but what if it was a curse as it you know as they always talk about it's like oh you know that's so difficult to control but then it's like okay well you still look like an angel right so how difficult is your life really Anyways, uh, it involves Angel, a, a new Angel, not Angel Warren Worthington, but rather uh, this this new Angel who has these problems. Um, Beast recognizes that Cassandra Nova is, sorry, Charles Xavier is in Cassandra Nova's body. And then it is like perhaps my favorite issue of the two, uh, perhaps the entire Grant Morrison run. Um, I think I may have mentioned this before, but this is part of like the theme Nuff said. I think maybe I did the Daredevil mm-hmm. issue for this. Um, Nuff said was like a one month where all these issues had zero uh, letter lettering. And um, I don't know, at some point somebody told me that I think this was like almost like a what's a, oh, yeah. a picket line crossing thing for like, I which I, I tried to Google before this and I couldn't find anything on it. So it, it, maybe it wasn't. But it's like if it is, it's kind of like it has a little bit of a dark, t- uh, you know, like twist to it. But if it isn't, either way, it did create some like really, really cool issues. And I think the best work of like these enough set is this uh, X new X Men issue, in which uh, they basically do psychic surgery on Cassandra Nova. And so Emma Frost, who is a telepath, and Jean Grey, who is a telepath, they go into uh, Xavier's brain. They basically start off by telling, like, uh, you know, Wolverine and Cyclops to be quiet, that they have to do all this work. And then they go into his brain, and it's, like, so interesting how they interpret what Xavier's brain would look like, how they communicate inside, how, like, nothing follows the properties of physics and so on. And it's just like breathtaking pages. This is the the art is by handled by uh, Frank Quietly. Quietly, uh, I don't know how you say his name. It's not even a real name. It's I think a pun on words. Anyways, uh, he ends up. Um, I think it's like I think he rewrote his last name to be Quietly, but he does Quietly for this issue because there's no words. So it's like pun on pun. Um, anyways, like, if you're gonna check out, like, one issue of the series, it would be this one. Like, it's so, so good, and it ends up with uh, a great cliffhanger. Uh, at this point, I, I've spoiled it, but you don't know until this moment where it says, you know, the only words ever spoke, spoken are in the last, like, kind of full-page panel with Jean Grey and Emma Frost exiting the surgery, and Jean saying, Professor X tried to kill his twin sister while they were both still in the womb. We need to talk. And that's how the issue ends. And so uh, all these, all the other uh, Nuff said issues, they all come with a little script of like kind of so you can follow along how they plotted it out. But either way, it's it's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to continue reading the, the new X-Men stuff because like I said, uh, it, it changed a lot of my perspective. If you, if you haven't uh, listened to this podcast, I would recommend it. It's called X-Ray Vision. I think it was the latest episode that they had. So probably around uh, the first week of April, if you're looking for, for a timestamp. But just listen to what he says about comic books about how he interprets his work. I think it, w- it was a great interview.
How did he try and kill a baby in the womb? Is that just like physically, like with his mind? Yeah, no, with his. I think he tries to choke her. I, I they, they show you a little image here. I mean, I guess all our audio speakers cannot see it, but I will. Oh. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, you should search out the. Yeah, he tries to kill his uh, his twin sister. In do the you have? Room. A, I don't think I've ever asked. Do you have a favorite era of X Men? Like when you think of X Men, what are your what's your go to? I love when they thrive. So the, the, it, when when things are going well for them, I think narratively that poses challenges for writers because you can't keep on always going up. You have to bring them down. And so I think like if you ask me like which is the best storytelling, I would say that it's hard to argue that maybe New X Men wasn't the one that is like the most revolutionizing in a way. Um, but to me, my favorite era is when they go to uh, California. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, it's like the Matt Fraction Brubaker era. And they just like they're they're vibing, you know. It's like it's the they're what they call like you know letting their freak flags fly. They they are loved by the the people there. I think like narratively in the long run you can't do that for too long because like you have to give them some type of challenge, and so they end up losing that. But I just love when you know they're out there living their best life. I I also enjoy that they left New York because everything is so New York centric that they kind of allowed them to have their own space in. In Cali, they they ended up bringing Asteroid M down as like a, their little utopia island. Uh, I also love the current era where we're at, where they're all living on the Krakoa Island. Because again, I just love them thriving and building their community and kind of building their own culture. So I think any time that we get to see that is when I love them the most. I mean, in terms of like the classic stuff, I'm a big fan of the Australian Outback era uh, that Claremont wrote. Um, I love... I mean, in general, I just really like the X-Men, so hard to pick favorites, but I think that, yeah, anytime that they're, like, all concentrated in one place, living their best life, because then you get to see, like, because often, you know, it's like, okay, the team is going to be, like, Rogue, Storm, Wolverine, Havoc, blah, blah, right, and so six or seven of these that may be your favorites, but you're always left wondering, it's like, okay, so what is, like, this person doing right now, like, you know, what is like doing right now? And so whenever they're all kind of in this place, they kind of jump in and out of the storylines, and that's kind of how I see them. Like, I think, uh, you know, X-Men are kind of known for a lot of baseball playing. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but they play a lot of baseball at the, the, the mansion, and they're kind mm -hmm. of, like, bonding. They're family, right? And so often it's, like, when there's six of them, it's like, well, okay, well, where are the rest? Like, you know, what does Jubilee think about well, what's happening with Wolverine over there? And and that I miss that often when they are a little bit too separated or segmented or, like, you know, their, their missions take them too far away from each other. So I enjoy when they're all, like, concentrated in one place. I don't know if right. I don't know if it exists. Maybe it does. Uh, surely I'm not having this novel idea. But an X-Men book, you know, just the life and times at the school. You know, just 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 a story at the school. Yeah, uh, X-Men Unlimited was a series that came out for a while, kind of around this era, so maybe slightly after when they rebuilt the mansion in New York, and it was kind of like these smaller, just slice-of-life stories of, you know, they weren't really sequential, so each issue would have just, like, stories, say, like, starring Beast or starring Rachel Gray, you know, there was, like, a famous one where Rachel Gray just reaches out to Havoc, who is her, I guess, time-displaced or reality-displaced uncle, right, because she's not really from, is she from the future? I don't know. <laughs> Rachel Summers is a mess. Anyways. But she reaches out and she's talking about, like, how hard she finds it to see, like, Scott and Emma just running the school. And, you know, like, it's almost like Jean was replaced. 
And so they have like a nice little, you know, bonding moment just sitting on a bench and, and so on. And, and Unlimited did a lot of that kind of exploring, like, you know, what it's like to be there, what it's like to have these relationships. I think it was never like a top seller because, you know, at the end of the day, people want their, their big action pieces. But it was uh, an interesting way to explore the rest of it. Another interesting book is Why the Last Man. Now, we have talked about Brian K. Vaughan for months and we love Brian K. Vaughan here. And so I, after last month with some shipping woes preventing me from continuing Why the Last Man, I've now made my way from volume two to four. So I've read three volumes in the past month. So that they all have titles. They're all right here next to me. So that's what? Cycles, One Small Step and Safe Word. So of course, written by Brian K. Vaughan, art by Pierre Guerra, mostly. And I feel like that is worth mentioning some criticisms I, I have. But these for three and four, two and three, once you start reading it, you cannot put them down. These are the ones that focus on. It's the, the relationship between Yorick and his sister, and then the astronauts coming back down from space. Because it turns out that whatever has happened on the Earth has not spread to all men in the cosmos. There are some astronauts up in space. There are two men up there, one woman. Um, this, they're at the International Space Station. They need to return to Earth. Of course, the men die. The woman lives. And these were brilliant. They look brilliant. They're brilliant. They're written brilliantly. I was constantly surprised. Every character that was introduced that I thought might stick around killed off immediately. The woman that's the head of the Amazons, axe to the head. She's dead. The woman that... Yorick almost cheats on his girlfriend with shot. She's dead. I mean, it's just constant in and out of characters. And that is what made it such a page turner. But then I got to volume four, safe word. And this one, I'm not sure how I felt. And perhaps that was the, the, the idea. But so it's split into two parts. You've got, Safe word, the mm. first part, and then Widow's Past. So I'll talk about Widow's Past first, because there's a change in the creative team here, where the art is not by Pierre Guerrero, it's by Goran Parilov, and the colouring is not by Pamela Rambo, it's by Xylenol. I don't know if that's a group of person, whatever. But it's not by Pierre Guerrero, and unlike my thoughts on Batman, I feel like this did change the book. It suddenly became a lot brighter. And whilst the actual subject matter was just as sombre as it always is, focusing on a group of women that have blockaded a road and Yorick dealing with some trauma and issues that he experienced at the start of, of Volume 4, it sort of... I mean, I wasn't around in 2003, but it took something away that the creative team had changed a bit. And I do hope that it returns back to what it was, only because I did prefer that style of drawing and that colouring more than I did here, even though they aren't really yes. that... If you look at them, they aren't that different. It just felt different. Yeah. I think that's something... I think we've talked about it before, why comic books are what they are. You know, it's such an amalgamation of different people's talents and influences that mm -hmm. 
the art and the the inking and the littering is just as important as the actual penciling and and writing. So, yeah, what did you think specifically about well, the change in the creative team? Did that have an impact on you when you were reading My Last Man more recently? Yeah, it's definitely very notable. I think like the and for the record, it's just temporary. Like the as you as you carry forward, it goes back to Pierre Guerra. Um, yeah, no, for sure. I think like the it, it just a lot of the the Brian K. Vaughn is almost like slowed down because they don't want to jump through different creative teams. Like Saga, Paper Girls, they're all like one artist consistently throughout the run. And so I think in this one, it was kind of a bit of transitioning off what used to be like a standard of the comic book industry, which is like if you take longer than a month to do an issue, we need to put out an issue. So we need to bring in another artist to fill in some pages and so on. And I think like uh, it worked for like a mini story, you know, like try not doing it for a long time and then going back whenever it was needed. But yeah, I think that definitely Pia is is the is part of the DNA of that book. So it's exactly. great to see it. And so her. then... We've got this, the titular story, safe word of, of volume four. And this whole bit just made me feel really uneasy. And I just couldn't quite figure out why this was happening and whether it should or not. So the volume starts with the monkey ampersand is, is ill or something. And they need to go to uh, a hospital to go get some some antibiotics or something to get to to, to treat ampersand and, and make him him better uh, and 355 is concerned that Yorick is too much of a of a loose cannon to come with them so he's like oh, I'll drop you off with my old friend agent 711 and they make some 711 jokes and I chuckled every time because Brian K. Vaughan is a great writer yeah like, great That'll be a nice change of pace. I wasn't expecting quite the change of pace that we get here. Instead of just becoming Yorick and this new agent getting to know each other, it becomes some sort of strange pseudo-sexual get-over-your-suicidal-tendencies thing that is going on. And I, I I didn't like it at all. And I don't know if I was supposed to like it. I just... Yeah, not a fan. Not enough to put me off reading anymore. I just this. I mean, you know, it's a long story. Mm-hmm. Not everything can be for me, but this was very much not yeah. for me. And yeah, sort of a strange. Just why I don't understand because supposedly then at the end Yorick is less suicidal than he was before, but he doesn't really seem that different in the second part of the story. He mentions it. That it was weird and old Yorick used to do things like this, but not me now. But why was this the way of going about it? Some sort of strange torture therapy to not be so, like, don't give in to your mental health issues. I'm going to drown you for a bit until you see that life is worth living. Yeah. Yeah, not not a fan of that. What were your thoughts on volume four? I I liked it. I think um, I think it also ends up paying off a bit more towards the end. There is a, a reason why Yorick decides that mm-hmm. it's worth living, and you will find out towards the end. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree that it's definitely a bit of a jarring and shocking turn. 
Um, yeah, I think, and, and I don't know if it's handled with, or maybe it's not supposed to be, right? But there's like, you know, York recounting like mm-hmm. the time that a friend basically molested him, right? And, and, you know, and then going through basically this woman molesting him again. And, and, uh, it's, I, I don't know if maybe that's how we would write those scenes today, but that's definitely how they were written. And, I, you know, it's definitely a perspective. So I, I think, I, maybe I agree with you that it's like if I were reading this today, because but I read it when it came out, right? So that's like kind of what like what informs my my take on it. Um, but yeah, like it, it's definitely a shocker. I think this one's like the most out there of of the, the the volumes because it does again, and it's also you know it involves a lot of imagination and him seeing things. So it's like very far removed from reality, which the rest of the series very much is grounded in. So I think yeah, regardless of how you feel, whether you love this one or hate this one, it's definitely like kind of a one off no, in terms of, of the vibe. Like- all the rest of it, quality. I mean, it's not that this was bad. I say, I want to make that very clear. It's not bad. It's just not for me. But there are certainly interesting things that. I mean, I mean spoiler warning at the beginning, but in case you've forgotten, still spoilers. There are so many interesting things set up that I am looking. For. A, a male baby has been born, and then there was this side story which I thought was utterly irrelevant. Oh, this group of theatre people has found Ampersand for some reason. And at first I thought, oh, it must be in the future. This hasn't happened yet. But then in Volume 4 it's referred to the past. that Oh, they met this group of of theatre people. So it's like, well, when was Ampersand lost? Where's this ninja come from? I don't know. I want to know. And that is very exciting to me. We now know, yeah. I mean, subtle, uh, not obvious to Yorick, but pretty obvious, I think, to anyone else. Dr. Man is into Agent 355. Great. I'm looking forward to see how, how that pans out. Knowing the titles of some of the later volumes, I feel like I might be able to figure it out. But this is why the last man. So it's probably, <laughs> someone probably dies because why not? The, the, the town of women that were criminals. Why it's taken me 26 years of living to read these, I I do not know. But I can only thank you for drinking over this. Oh, what a time. <laughs> I'm happy you're enjoying it. Again, it's like I think part of it is like, you know, a little bit aged. You know, like it, it, it's not like as if you were reading it back then. But the core of it is so interesting and he is a good writer. So a lot of it's still able to carry through. The last thing I want to mention, because it's something else I did miss in uh, Volume 4. The J.G. Jones covers for each issue are astounding. I love them. And when the cover art did change, not again, not that the new covers are bad. Uh, I can't remember who it changes to. It is Aaron Weisenfeld and Massimo Carnavale. Their covers, not bad. Far from it. They too are, are excellent pieces of art but these jg jones covers Mm -hmm. it makes me sad that the covers for the volumes are just these white things with a massive letter y on i would have much preferred some just one of the covers of the issues just big yeah i kind of forgot about the covers until you mentioned it right now because i did read them recently in that way and i kind of like i guess just because i know i'm reading a collective volume i end up skipping over like what i know anyways i i I didn't really acknowledge them in this last reread that i did but i do remember them especially like the one reads like with all those pigs like that one i think my favorite so far has been the one with the spaceman the space suit helmet with the skull with the skull yeah must admit i did expect that the men in the spaceship would die and and of course 
they did because it would be, you know, there are six six volumes left to be why the last man and these two other astronauts that that lived. But so I wasn't particularly surprised. But it's nice. It reminds me somewhat, at least the changes in Yorick that we're seeing of Rick from. The Walking Dead. At least how we leave Yorick here. At the beginning, Rick is this upstanding member of society, especially in the show. By like season three, season four, he's out of it. He's killing people left, right, and centre. Yorick is not that far gone. But the end of of uh, the set of uh, Widow's Peak in Volume Four, Yorick does finally kill someone, and it just gave me very strong Rick Grimes vibe, especially how it's drawn and set up. So, yeah. Why the Last Man? Great. Awesome. So, here you go. That is another episode of PhD Student Reads in the cans. You can follow the show on Twitter and again now on Instagram at PhD Reads and at PhD Student Reads. Here we go. Layered Butter. You can follow Layered Butter on Twitter at Layered underscore Butter and at Layered Butter on Instagram. We've already heard about your review of Everywhere, Everything, All at Once, but can you tell us what else is going on in the world of Late Butter? Uh, we recently announced that all the Studio Ghibli issues, they're currently take, we're currently taking pre-orders for a Studio, Studio Ghibli issue of Laird Butter. They will be coming with an amazing little mini print by um, a man whose name is very difficult to pronounce. I won't say it because I don't have the pronouncers right in front of me. But check it out. He's a very famous in the AMP artist. It's very beautiful. It's Chihiro from Spirited Away. So, yeah, it's uh, you know, if you haven't put your order in for that one, maybe now's the time. Do you have a favorite Studio Ghibli film? Oh, uh, Mm. I will say I, I there, there's one that I, I usually say and then there's the real one so <laughs> I think if someone were to ask me and I will reveal it here if someone like typically asked me which one's your favorite I think I typically say Princess Mononoke because I do love it but I think if if I'm being quite quite honest I think my favorite is Nausicaa uh, in the val- of the Valley of the Wind and then other than that because I think Nausicaa doesn't really count for for people because it was right before studio it's like the same people but they had not formed the studio yet so if that doesn't count i would say ponyo which is like very simplistic but it's just like it makes me think a lot about like how disney studios would make the little mermaid and studio ghibli would make ponyo and just like the differences culturally of those two things so mine is princess one like i think that's the sort of like the the generic ER. It's either that or Howl's Moving Castle or Spirited Away, I think, at the top. If you want to I mean, ask, they're all yes. great. I I love them. I'm not saying that I don't like Princess Mononoke. It's just like, I think, like, secretly I say it because I think I'm supposed to say it. And, like, really, it's something like Ponyo. And it's just like, it just makes me think of so many things of, like, how interesting. It's like a love story between kids, but it's not, like, sexualized. It's not even, like, this darkness that I think, like, we in the Western mm-hmm. world would give, like, a love story between kids, right? It's just, like, this beautiful, pure thing. And I think it's just interesting to see. Absolutely. Well, you can find that on those social handles. Layeredbutter.com, I think, is is the website. I hope. And I've said it now. Yeah, it you is. can find it, it all is. there. And the social media link, so I wouldn't even... Maybe I should just say that, then I can't get it wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, episode 26 of a PhD student reads. See you uh, in a month, I guess. With, with even more, Moon Knight will probably be finished by then. Uh, so, And I probably will have read Moon Knight because I ordered... I, I wasn't able to read it for this month because I was missing the first volume and I ordered on Amazon just to not arrive in time, but it will arrive for next month. I will month. say, it's also worked out for the best because I also got them... I couldn't remember which Moon Knight you were going to read, so I got two omnibuses of Moon Knight. I got the Bendis one uh-huh. and the Charlie Hutchinson one that came before. Read neither. So it all worked out for the yeah, best. So I- 
I was missing like the first volume of that Charlie, Charlie, whoever the writer is. Like he, I was missing that one. I had everything for. I was like, I might as well just order this and then start from the Absolutely. beginning rather than skipping one. Well, you can look forward to much more Moon Knight chat, and who knows what else? Be, oh, is it? It's April now. So when does when does Multiverse of Madness come out? Early May. I don't know. Might be. We'll, we'll see. see. I guess next we'll, month. We'll see. Who knows? If... Multiverse chat may continue, and uh, I'm sure there'll be plenty of X Men chat. Uh, if, if if that's the case, so you can if that happens, uh, I've seen the trailer. It's gonna happen. Uh, but you can look forward to that in in a month's time. So yeah, goodbye. Bye. Bye.